Hello, and welcome to our podcast series on how to drive multi-channel success. In this series, we'll be exploring a range of issues which you and your business are faced with every day. Three of us from Prospero and the Multi-Channel Expert have pooled our expertise and experience of working with many brands over the last 20 years to come up with a set of practical suggestions and ideas that will help you deliver greater success in your e-commerce business. We really hope you find the discussion useful and we look forward to your feedback. In today's episode, I'm pleased to say that we have Liam from Vivant. Hello, thanks for having me. So Liam, how would you describe what Vivant do? That sometimes is a tough question because yeah, we mould to um, some of the projects and, and brands that we speak with, but essentially we're an e-com consultancy that um, have specialist areas between us. We do a lot of technical requirements, scoping pre-projects, we do a lot of re-platforming projects end-to-end, so we'll be sort of product owners, we'll be the, the technical governance and delivery partner on that and then we run sort of strategic roadmaps so post launch we work with a lot of brands to do a sort of 12 month strategic roadmap on on how to essentially keep growing so yeah we 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 cover a few things but fundamentally we have a technical core skill set of supporting our econ clients and would you say you specialize in any particular part of the ecosystem no, so well, so we're completely agnostic in terms of platforms. So yeah, we have clients that are Magenta, Shopify, Big Commerce, Salesforce, Centra, the range. So we're completely agnostic. But between myself with a sort of background in Shopify, Paul's got a strong background in Magenta. We've got skill sets in Salesforce historically. So we've got we've got the in depth knowledge of a lot of platforms, but we are agnostic. So the first question I'd like us to talk about is. How do you see the tech market evolving over the next two years and what, what's been happening, what's out there and where do you see things happening going forward? Liam? Yeah, I guess what we've seen from the previous two years. So I think um, the trend that we have seen at Vivant is from brands coming to us initially, say two years ago, with a outline of a scope and wanting to know what platform they best fit. So we might review three or four platforms with them uh, to come up with best fit. To the trend now being brands coming to us with Shopify in mind and actually just validating whether Shopify is a good fit for them and they're already leaning that way but they want to validate that decision. So I think, yeah, that, that taking that into account, I think the next two years is almost I would see it continuing that way. It's like Shopify versus the rest. We were talking off air about whether that is businesses being more advanced in their thinking than they might have been previously. But I think what you were keen to say is, no, it's not really that. It's just they kind of like Shopify. Shopify has become the default option for them. I think Shopify, obviously brands speak to each other or seeing what's going on in the cross the market um, and I think yeah, Shopify has just become almost the default option and then it's validating whether actually are we the exception or is it best fit for us as well. Okay, excellent. And then what about the more enterprise end of the market? So you know, if the default for, for lower end is, is becoming Shopify, A, are there any threats to, to Shopify and also what happens in, in larger organisations? I, I tend to think that if we if we went back a little bit further than Liam has suggested, maybe five years ago, most of the solutions were kind of broadly the same. They all offered a slightly different variation, but they were all philosophically in the same camp. 
I think what we're seeing now, from what Liam said and other market intel, is that the market's polarised. So if you're a business that wants to make technology a central capability of your business, then you're more likely to take control of your own destiny and to build your own solutions using headless or composable or modular kind of capabilities. If, however, you don't want to focus on technology and want to become more product marketing centric, then you probably need a partner. And that partner could end up being a completely outsourced solution, like indeed even an Amazon or a Hub Group or someone like that. Or if you want to take some small part in building your future, um, a Shopify solution or something like that maybe. So I think we're seeing a polarization with, with businesses being defined along a, a parallel of what's important to me rather than being small or being enterprise. It's actually what matters to me and what do I need to take control of. That's the way I see it. Yeah, I think that's, I think that first side of the market of the default, I think Shopify have dominated that already. So I think they've already sort of taken that from you know where previously there might have been a WooCommerce, Magento, standard retailer. Um, and then yeah, obviously the other side of the market with the composable headless platforms, Centra commerce tools. I think Shopify are trying to push to capture more of that market as well. But yeah, I think that the, the idea of the sort of polarization is fair. And what I find fascinating is you've got business like SAP, who have kind of got a bit caught short to some extent, have now built Shopify equivalents or are building Shopify equivalents. And people like Salesforce Commerce Cloud, who equally might in part think that they've been a little bit left behind by this evolution, are now building headless capabilities. So it's almost like the market is is, is increasingly polarised and, and yeah. even yeah. the players who are left in the middle ground now find their future to be either offering a one end of the solution or the other end of the solution. The middle ground is kind of not a great place to be. Yeah, and obviously you can get headless variants of Shopify as well if you wish. So it's not an either completely an either or situation. Yeah, I think that's one of the... Yeah, I think for the next two years, which your question was, I think that piece from Shopify of moving how they move towards the other end of the market with their like hydrogen offering um, and their composable approach will be interesting. But yeah, I think the I think it's they're pushing to try and capture more of that side, exactly as you just said. Okay. So within that sort of polarized environment that we've been discussing, what are the key sort of issues that you've you've seen in the market? To start with the Shopify side, probably. So I think Shopify have probably worked the trajectory that they've been on. They've sort of closed a lot of gaps and issues that they've had that have maybe separated a big commerce or a magenta. Um, where now, it, yeah, to get to that default choice, I think the architecture for international is probably the key issue or compromise still. Where you know you've got brands that have got five, ten, or more. Shopify uh, store instances that yeah you have to try and manage the, the architecture of. So I think from the Shopify point of view, I think that's probably the the issue to get around, and they obviously are working on that with with some of the international market stuff that they're releasing. Yeah, and and David, what else do you see as issues in the market? Well, I think the economic climate we're in and the events of the last few years, I think, have given everybody a bit of a wake up call and. The cost of ownership has come under scrutiny, I think, by almost everybody. That doesn't mean that everyone is trying to slash their costs. If you're in the enterprise scale, you're probably increasing the amount of money you spend on technology. But if you're not fortunate enough to be in that camp, you probably are having to scrutinise everything on your 
uh, P&L with a view to reducing the cost wherever you can. So we all thought it was amazing that Shopify came along with the ability to launch an online business with literally a credit card in your hand. We now know there are even cheaper versions of that. And of course, there are compromises in doing that. But take a look at Shopline with 60, 70,000 customers in Asia who built e-commerce off the back of social media. So there are even challenges to the cheaper end of the market. So I think a theme is how do I cut my costs without compromising to an extent that I'm not happy with? But also, how do I simplify, because simplification produces lower costs, how do I simplify what I've got and sweat what I've already spent my money on even harder? So that shows in the rise and rise of Shopify, I guess. But does that put a, a cap or, or a constraint on the move towards the sort of fully headless microservices-led option that we've seen driven from commerce tools and big commerce? Well, I think to some extent it probably does, simply by the dint of costs. You know, everybody knows that to go down a microservices, um, headless, whatever you want to call it, composable route, is going to be much more expensive because you're building a very bespoke individual solution. You have to have people who know what they're doing. They tend to cost more than the generic capability that you might otherwise employ. And therefore, you are into a significant uh, investment in technology. But that's not wrong if your business is going to put technology at the very heart of what it does, if that's going to power the growth of your business for the next 20 years, putting the correct amount of investment in is right. However, if that isn't what you want to make a, a feature of, then it's probably not the wisest decision, as we've seen from some examples, to head off down that route. Yeah, I think well, I was going to say the, the other point in general issues that we've seen is definitely that TTO's side, so brands that... Um, have come to us or we've, we've done a survey of about 100 merchants on their, where their priorities lie in terms of budgets and reducing that TCO came out um, top or second to, to billboard advertising or something, but basically top. And I think all these things factor into that. So I think one of the things we were talking about, Liam, off air here is how many businesses we talk to who already have license costs for services that are underutilized. So with the evolution of software and the acquisition of companies by other companies often means that people are paying license fees for things that they're barely using. It's the old kind of, I guess, iceberg concept. And getting under the skin of what they've already spent and what they could deploy quite easily, I think is a value proposition that many of them would do well to think about because you know how many people have got competing search capabilities how many people have got competing pop-up solutions yeah. that, that could be simplified rationalized and made simpler and easier have you come across that yeah i think um so definitely through covid with firstly growth of a lot of tech vendors and then secondly um massive growth for a lot of brands online um i think there was a willingness to sign up to a lot of the different tech uh, and get it on site and within those two years i think there's vendors that have grown their offering to now be where they where they were best in breed and did something really specific really well there's now multiple that probably clash or offer the same sort of functionality um and brands that are maybe tied into both or you know or multiple vendors like these um, that could actually and are now 
looking at how to streamline and just and just get the best out of one. Okay, so following on from that, what is your view on the the rise of headless? I mean, we know that you're specialising in more of the Shopify end of the market, but nonetheless, you'll be completely. I know you guys have been completely exposed to a number of big headless projects and have seen failures and re-changes of, of the way that those projects have been running. So why, why do you think so many of those projects are having to be reconfigured to, to work in different ways? Yeah, I think, um, so I, from a sort of tech background and with a computer science head on, I think it's great. I think it's, um, in theory, the headless composable architecture is, is just better software design. Um, so yeah, I like it from that side. Um, but from our sort of commercial day-to-day, what we're seeing, I think um, it's great in the right circumstances. I think there's probably a lot of failures that you're referring to maybe that have been signed up or have signed up because of the dream of this shiny new future that actually they maybe don't understand the, the resource that will go into it or the, you know, the technical input that's required. Yeah, and we've certainly had instances with, with clients where we've had board level discussions about whether or not they want to be tech led yeah. or whether they want to be tech enabled. And for us, that's quite a big distinction in, in the approach that you might want to take to technology. And, and really, are there some examples that, that you can, without necessarily naming the client, but that you can expand upon from that yeah, point so of view to, so yeah. that our listeners can understand the rationale of why things have become more difficult? Yeah, on this topic, so yeah, we have we probably have a lot of conversations with brands that are either considering um, headless or composable or have started the journey and actually want some input on how it's going. Yeah, there's one brand that we're talking to that we've made build with commerce tools and they had probably, they were approaching maybe the million pound cost uh, and didn't see the sort of end goal in sight and they ended up they just been led by somebody whose um, technical opinion was it was the best way forward and for that brand who was sort of you know a, a high street fashion brand I guess it was just the wrong approach completely and they, they ended up abandoning that for a Shopify build that's quite a contrast isn't it yeah exactly yeah that was just the right option for them yeah. which should have been made from the beginning yeah and, and we've also seen you know and it's on public record the fact that Ted Baker had issues with their big commerce driven headless platform that went live then they've been bought by AVG and now effectively they're abandoning going to abandon that yeah. big commerce platform and outsource it all so we've seen that and we've seen Reese give up their bespoke platform and go on to the next platform and then next taking a controlling share of the business so I guess there's a polarization of, of a number of different approaches. Yeah I think the other dimension that comes out of Liam's example though is that if you're a small to medium sized business and and the project is more the kind of um, initiative that spawns from one or two key people, then the business is entirely at the mercy of those two people mm. to continue that project. And mm. if those two people decide their future is elsewhere, the business is now facing an existential crisis that, that we're in a situation that is going to be very difficult to navigate away from. So I think my advice to small, medium-sized businesses is think very carefully about the risks, the downside risks of an initiative like this, because it could A, be very expensive and very costly and take longer than you think, that I think is proven, but also you are now beholden to one or two people, two key people and their knowledge and understanding, and if that were to exit the business, then you would be in a real challenge. 
to repl replicate that. Uh, yeah, that knowledge. I think we've, and there's obviously a lot of good examples where brands, especially that have like omni-channel offering or want to push that side, um, on other other reasons, have had successful, you know, headless or composable builds. So there's there is good arguments for, but um, yeah, I think being wary of the risks against and you know being led by one or two people that might have a vision or you know a reason why they might want to push the tech side and the sort of risks in the, the complexity I think that's really wise advice and I mm. think if you're if you're listening to this podcast and you're a small to medium-sized business thinking that that's the direction I would just take a little bit more time to be absolutely sure that you've considered all the risks that could emanate from that decision should things not go to plan and in terms of the total cost of the ownership, what examples have we got of people stripping cost out of the business and trying to simplify things? Um, we've we've you know, certainly experienced it in the past where we've managed to get one person to run a Shopify website to do absolutely all of the marketing and all of the order control and literally everything uh, for a startup brand versus we've had other clients where effectively you've got 70 people in e in ecom trying to run things or, or in another case 450 people trying to build their own platform so what are people actively doing at the moment to try and strip out costs yeah i think one of it one of the points comes to so we've seen um, brands where you know there's tech like algolia content square um uh, dynamic yield other big sort of complex pieces of tech that are really powerful but but the the brand has either streamlined the team or don't have the resource in the team to manage those so not getting anywhere near the best out of those um, pieces of technology so I think yeah we've seen brands look to you know switch those out for something more simple to use or something where even if it's not as powerful you can get a hundred percent out of it without anywhere near the resource so I think that's one point. I think your point earlier on where there's tech that have grown. So a couple of years ago, you might have seen or you might still see brands with um, Nosta, Clavio, Yopo, those all in the same tech stack where actually some of those have sort of diverged to do, to offer functionality that crosses over. So actually, is it still right to have all three or you know, can you get all the required functionality out of less of those separate pieces of tech? And then I think the other the other point I was going to make was actually we've seen people invest in in more tech that will streamline the resource needed within the team. So an example being brands that will have um, one or multiple people sat whose whose day to day is, is dominated by product management via sheets or you know a lot of manual effort and investing in putting in a PIM that has automations and that can push that data across multiple places is an investment but it actually saves you know two people's uh, resource of time which can be spent elsewhere so and, and again pims are becoming cheaper at that end of the market yeah. as well so that you can get to a situation where you can see that the economics are getting pretty close to two people's full-time job cost yeah, I think and therefore seen, it will pay for itself relatively quickly. We're seeing big brands using something like Airtable now as the PIM uh, and do like an incredible job from it. And it's you know easy to get integrated, or you know there might be a one-off cost to integrate, but it's really low running costs, um, really easy to use, saves a lot of time within the team. Um, so in that total cost piece, 
um, is really beneficial. I think for, for lots of people listening, and certainly for lots of retailers, the idea of investing might seem counterproductive yeah. to the idea of trying to save costs, but actually if you can prove that putting a PIM in saves a couple of heads, and the benefit of that is, is worth having, then do it. I think I'd use the same logic of technology. So if you've got overlapping technology, mm-hmm. you're far better off taking out a couple of bits of, of non-productive tech and possibly investing some of that saving in a product manager who can sit on the balance of the tech and make sure it's utilised. Because I think we've talked before about how sometimes tech is not used yeah. in, the, um, in the kind of iceberg conversation. It might now be time to invest some of that saving in a person who's going to sweat that asset and maximise the value people get from the remaining bits of tech. Yeah, exactly. I think so, um, some of the tech that I mentioned previously it's um, very powerful can make a huge difference but you need to have that resource invested otherwise um, otherwise there's no point in having the tech whatsoever you know yeah. you're only getting 20% out of it so so there would be benefit for a client in terms of taking stock of the stacks that they have to look at the overlaps right now with a way to going forward in a, in with a simplified mindset I mean if if we look at the amount of change that many websites go through which is not that great you would argue you know how much ongoing real-time optimization are many people doing well the answer is very little google's removed its core product in that area so that's not helping but actually there isn't that much change going on so therefore having a low cost sustainable stack when the overall econ market is at best flat to minus five percent makes complete sense yeah i think it does, and I think that the, the point I would put behind that is you're far better off as an e-commerce leader to make those decisions yourself than wait for the finance director to tip up and ask Absolutely. you to save some money. Yeah, yeah. So I think understanding the, the ecosystem of technology, understanding the overlap, and then making some decisions about how you might remove some of that overlap but invest some of that money in sweating the balance is, is a... Is a is an exercise worth undertaking, even if you only, at this stage, do it on paper or reach out to someone who can help you do it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'd now like to move on to something that's related to that, which is actually when you have a new project, and typically these are being driven in agile ways, you're working with your clients in in agile ways, is enough resource being deployed by retailers in particular, retailers and brands, to actually plan things properly and try and identify and define some of those requirements. So it's the, it's the corollary of take stock of your stack is actually saying, okay, we've got this new stack, we're building towards a new environment, but actually what are the business requirements for that? And we've had instances in the past where technology has been operating in kind of a vacuum and doing the best job they can because there are no business requirements against which to build things. But So have you, have you experienced that in terms of your business? Yeah, I think um, I'd like to think so because, you know, when we're... Uh, working with clients that's that's our our role I suppose um, hopefully they're, they're putting enough thought into that I think some of the composable and some of the headless um, bills that we were talking about earlier that, that are maybe failing is due to a lack of um, that scope and all that requirements piece being um, in depth enough um, and maybe an expectation n- potentially naively from the brand side that where there's an expectation of going composable but you know having things just work out the box because people are more used to the Shopify or the big commerce where you'll just get gift cards out the box or you'll just get you know 
promotions tools out mm -hmm. of the box and I think some of it is potentially naivety or not the right people um, being involved um, so yeah I think that's probably that's probably a big reason we had some of the failures that we talked about okay and I want to ask specifically about agile because that's one of the the conversations David yeah. and I have in particular is <coughs> which is how agile can one be when when replatforming because from from our point of view we've seen numerous clients where they are performing in an agile but in terms of what you've seen how agile can organizations in yeah this i think um be? i think that the agility and i think a lot of brands move to shopify because of agility but i think some of that agility has to start post replatforming so i think the replatforming side is um, there's a piece of work that needs doing and it and it needs to be planned and you know there's there's consequences technically or you know from SEO point of view or from your paid performance marketing point of view if um, things sort of completely change um, you know if you're too agile and change um, drastically so I think there needs to be a lot of structure around that initial replatforming piece mm -hmm. um, and I think yeah a lot of the agility probably comes post launching um, but yeah what's your what's your opinion well I mean the, the, we, we've had several clients <coughs> where they are they have big teams using agile and the key thing for us is that there is no common vision of what they're trying to build yeah. that's understood across a large team of people and that absolutely has to happen everybody's got to have a common yeah. understanding or it's just not going to work very well and, and the other one is having a lack of transparency between the actual teams involved so that somebody might be building a product that will do X, Y, and Z. You know, they'll, they'll be using Adobe to define the navigation on the site, but actually because they're not linked to the data team, they don't know that all the product data could be driving the navigation. Yeah. So you end up having a manually driven process in Adobe to drive navigation that could be data driven. Yeah, for yeah. I guess we'll probably say the same thing. Where I think, yeah, I think that initial piece definitely needs the structure and the sort of aligned vision up front um, to avoid any sort of drastic consequences around launch or um, through the build. I, I tend to think that most retailers, and of course there are exceptions, and doubtless many exceptions, most retailers struggle with the notion of being agile. Mm -hmm. they, they have been born and grown up and matured in an era where silos were actually quite productive things. Mm -hmm. People were allowed to get on with becoming an expert in their silo. And now here we are saying, you've got to change all that. Everyone's got to talk to everybody and everything's got to be transparent. And, got to, and that's just not in the DNA of lots of well-established business. It's really, really difficult mm -hmm. to do. And I think a lot of projects fail, as I think you've said, because that isn't true. So I think Agile with a capital A is, a, is an aspiration for many, but in reality is very, very difficult to achieve. But I want to go back to something I think that I heard you guys say before about retailers with a preconceived idea that Shopify was their solution and therefore please tell me why it shouldn't be. And that made me think maybe they are getting more prepared. They're thinking ahead. Sadly, I don't think that's true. I, I, I really don't. And I think that the the world of third market, third party suppliers has grown up to help retailers through that journey. I think if retailers were doing it for themselves, you probably wouldn't need that plethora of solutions. I mean, you've even got businesses that have been established 
to to to, to draft RFPs yeah. for people, whereas we always used to thought that was that was our job to draft our own RFP. So I think I would advocate a bit of a return to self control before you start engaging with any third parties, because the reality is, with respect, every third party has a product to sell. And the moment you start engaging with them, you are likely to be, to some extent, biased by what they say and how they say it. So there is huge value in, in having independent thought, which you can only really have if you talk within your own organization about what your value set is and what your aspirations are and how you should go about conducting yourself. Because the moment you open up the market, the vast majority of people you talk to have something to sell you. Yeah. yeah. So, so what you're effectively saying is that the retailers currently, or many retailers currently, don't necessarily have the skill set to be able to extract the best from technology and they need to be mindful of that. They don't necessarily have to be complete full-on experts in, in technology to do that. But they also then, if they talk to a third-party expert to try and help them make decisions, have to be capable of understanding the bias and the feedback that that third party is going to give them. Yes, or talk to a third party who's truly independent. Okay. Yeah. So, Liam, what's the most exciting new technology you can see brands or retailers using over the coming months and years? I think um, so. I'm going to loop back almost to what we've talked about and maybe the first question is the so I think Shopify trying to push to the other end of the market and their hydrogen um, headless composable offering I think um, it's sort of gone under the radar I think it's been rebuilt recently with um, a remix framework which was like highly respected in the sort of dev world um, and I think it's an area that no not many agencies have particularly looking at or working with much right now but I think it's got a lot of potential and that would be the hook that pushes them to actually take a lot of the market the other end of the, uh, the, other end of the scale. So as a, as a bit of a wrap up Liam could you give us an example of a project that you think relates to what we've been talking about earlier and has been a success? Yeah so I was trying to think of something that sort of ties together a lot of the points that we've covered and was a big success. So I think um, Qubits that we worked with a bit early on, so they're not our active client again now, but we worked with them to sort of scope out what was a big project. So they're um, glasses brand, but they're very like tech driven to trying to change the sort of um, spectacles market, I guess, in terms of eye testing, trying on glasses, you know, the whole process end to end there. But they were on... Um, so they had like a custom uh, monolith platform basically that was their front end, it was their back end in CMS, the, all of their eye tests um, were all um, going through the same the same platform, the, it was their POS system, it was their ERP, the, their warehouse and wow. sort of lens management all went through the same system so it was a, yeah, it was a big beast and um, part of that early project that we worked with is actually how we can so they ended up being pretty tied into what they could do and, and restricted with what they could do and, and they wanted to have this front end experience that, that married up with the sort of vision uh, of being tech led and, and really user friendly um, and they were really restricted by that so it was actually, so I'm going back to the, the sort of composable discussion it was very much the spirit of composable I think or the the um, 
the reason for composable. So it's like, how do we actually separate these things um, in a way that commercially works? Isn't it, so we can't just rebuild it all at once because it'll be a four year project and by the end, we're gonna have people testing in stores, we're gonna have people testing online, we're gonna have the warehouse, you know, all it sort of the touch points were right across the business. So um, there was a lot of discussion of how, how best to separate these pieces of functionality. So they split the front end off, rebuilt that on Shopify, but used the API to push everything back into the that monolith system that, that manages the inventory and, and everything else. But then the you know next phase is gonna be how to split the, that off to a best in breed ERP and then you know one by one approach these in a composable way of, of getting to the point that they want it to be at from a from a tech perspective. Great, thank you. I think David has an example too. Yeah, I was just trying to rebalance the rhetoric a little bit. Imposable and Headless has taken a bit of a <coughs> kicking in this podcast for a variety of reasons. So I think I just wanted to cite one example, which is our friends at Aldi, who have embarked upon one of the most enormous projects you could possibly imagine, which is to build and launch a US business from scratch using their global capability, and I do mean global because elements of it sit across the world. Um, And whilst there are still some challenges with that project, as you would expect in a project of that scale, the sheer attention to technical detail is to be applauded. And I think that that's a business that's going to carry billions, or not billions, but certainly many, many millions of pounds worth of trade in the years to come. And I applaud them for having done what they've done, which is to launch a new iteration of their global template by using a completely home-built, headless, composable world, uh, using their new capability that they recruited for exactly that purpose out of Germany. So I think that's to be applauded. Okay, thank you. So David, from a Prospero perspective, what's the best way for a client to select a partner to help in this technology world? That's a good question. I think that partners, in my mind, are principally there to provide you with expertise that you maybe don't have or and plug the gaps in your organisation. So if you're thinking about a project, you may have all of the skills and capabilities you need in-house, in which case a partner may not be the wisest of choice, but that's often not the case for retailers and brands. They don't have uh, deep technical knowledge of the platform or the solution that they are adopting and therefore need a partner to help them with that technology integration work. Equally, you may not have project managers who can run a project like this and bring all of the parties together. However, there are some elements of selecting a partner that I think you should think more about than others. Firstly, are they the right kind of partner for your business? Do they share the same kind of cultural outlook? One. Two, are they of similar size? There's there's little point in a very small business appointing a partner to help them manage a project um, when that party is running 500 concurrent projects because you know there's going to be a conflict there. But one word of advice, if you end up selecting a partner because you don't have the capabilities and you end up finding one that is culturally and capability-wise filling all of the gaps in your organisation, 
make sure there is somebody within your business who is responsible for the relationship you've established with them. Make sure somebody inside your organisation is able to account for what they are doing, where they are, and what they have delivered against the plan that's been specified, i.e. please do not try to outsource that element of the work because you will feel like you've lost control and you will feel like you do not understand at the appropriate points in the journey exactly where you were versus where you expected to be. Brilliant. Well, hopefully our listeners have found that interesting and have taken something that they can apply themselves from it. And we look forward to talking to you on the next one. Many thanks.